Hello. Here I am ready to listen to an In The Loop podcast. But I can't. There aren't enough of them. So please, NPR, let Jeff and Sandin make more In The Loop podcasts. Please. It's quiet here. Hello. 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 It's quiet here. Please. It's quiet here. Jeff and Sandin. Jeff. 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 Jeff and Sandin. Ready to listen in the loop. In the loop. In the loop. 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 In the loop. In the loop. In the loop. 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 Hey everybody, it's In The Loop. I'm Jeff Horwich. Uh, That's our theme music, of course, but this particular version is a remix. And some of you may have heard this if you've been listening for a while. It's a remix of a video from some time ago by listener Mark Neymark, who happens to live in, in Paris. And here's why we used it again, besides the fact that it's just cool and it was high time we used it again. We knew this was going to be kind of a weird week with the holiday and everything, so I posted on our Facebook page, we were thinking of interviewing just one person for next week's show. Who should it be? So the nominations rolled in, and Mark nominated this guy named Dr. Steve Novella. And thanks to everybody for the rest of the nominations. A lot of interesting ones, but Mark's won the day. And that's why Steve Novella is with me here from, um, actually, I didn't exactly ask. You're somewhere near Yale, right, Steve? That's right. I live in uh, in Hamden, Connecticut, right outside of Yale. Well, we're glad to have some time with you. And um, so Steve Novella is a neurologist at the Yale School of Medicine, but he's better known to lots of people as, I guess you'd say, the nation's skeptic-in-chief. Maybe that's a global title. Do you have a way that you like to put it, Steve? <laughs> I mean, I don't really have any official title in the skeptical movement itself. I'm the host of The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, so that makes me an active player in the skeptical movement. But it, it's we're not that organized that we have official titles or anything. And uh, founder of the New England Skeptical Society. You write for a blog called uh, Science-Based Medicine and a few others. And we'll get to know a lot more about you as we go along here. And exactly what a skeptic means is something I guess we can start with. How, how do you define what it means to embrace your role as a skeptic? Well, I mean, a skeptic is, is simply somebody who wants to know the truth about the world, about nature, and we use logic and, and scientific methods to test all claims. We don't believe things unless there's evidence or logic to back it up. It's as simple as that. You know, if you're buying a used car, you kick the tires, right? You're not just going to take the salesman's word for, for anything about the car. So we, we kick the tires of all beliefs, basically. Hmm. So you have a, a tough time with religion and new agey stuff and uh, all kinds of things that shape our pop culture, I'd imagine. Well, sure. There's certainly a lot of hoaxes, of false beliefs, of superstition, and just bad science in pop culture and pop belief. You know, we try to steer clear of faith-based uh, beliefs. Not, I wouldn't say we steer clear of religions because if someone makes a uh, an anti-scientific or pseudoscientific claim based upon religion, we'll deal with the science, right? So, for mm-hmm. example, if people deny the science of evolution, regardless of their motivation, religious or otherwise, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll set the science straight. But if someone says, I have faith in this for no reason other than I have faith, I'm not making a scientific claim, there's just nothing we can say about that. It's not in the scientific arena. So we say, that's fine, but just keep it out of the, the arena of science. So you want to make this kind of a year-end wrap-up type of conversation. 
so uh, what do you think now that 2009 is almost over? Uh, who who won? Was this a good year for the skeptics or was this a, a better year for junk science? It's hard to say. You know, I think that the skeptical movement itself has been really skyrocketing in the last few years, mainly because of blogs and podcasts and the ability to, to network, you know, social networking on the internet has taken, you know, a bunch of small isolated groups and people and sort of brought us together as a unified movement. And that's, I think, given us a, a lot of success. So our numbers are growing, our outreach is growing. I think our influence uh, on the media and on the conversation about a lot of these topics has really increased this year and in the last few years. The other side of the coin, what about the proponents of uh, pseudoscientific or anti-scientific ideas? You've really got to take them case by case. Some have had a good year. Some have had, have had a bad year. So who's know? had a good year this year? I think the most mischief was probably done by the anti-vaccination movement this year. They've got a couple celebrities now behind them, like Jenny McCarthy and Jim Carrey. They are well-organized and well-funded. They have successfully engaged in a scaremongering campaign, a misinformation campaign about vaccines to the public. And they've had an impact. You know, as It's also one of the few things, issues that we deal with, where there are actual numbers attached. We're starting to see the return of diseases that we had you know, previously uh, either eradicated or minimized. There was just a, a mumps outbreak in Brooklyn, New York, I That's mean, with right. more cases than we would typically see in a year in the whole country. Was it the uh, H1N1 uh, thing this year that got people thinking so much more about vaccines, put that really I, on the map? That certainly raised the profile of the whole issue, and and again, the, the anti-vaccine movement was was right there, you know, scaremongering about the H1N1 vaccine, uh, and and had a negative impact on public health with respect to that uh, epidemic as well. Although I think that people were were equally concerned about H1N1 itself. So it was sort of two competing fears. You know, were you more afraid of getting the flu or or, or of the vaccine? Uh, the science kind of gets lost there in the middle. And that's what we're trying to do is just say, all right, well, here's the facts. Here's the science. Let's make some calm and sober decisions about risk versus benefit mm -hmm. based upon the evidence. It's not like we don't have any evidence to go by. Is there anything in particular from the last year that you just really relished going after, that you felt particularly good about your, your role in trying to debunk? Um, I always love going after the intelligent design creation proponents. Uh, they're, they're, they're a fun crowd to deal with because they're just so easy. And why was that such a big big thing this year? Was it, There's some anniversaries, right, of uh, the uh, origin of species and... 150th anniversary of the publication of Origin of the Species, so that made it, uh, you know, Darwin and, and evolution kind of a more prominent issue this year. But, you know, obviously this, that, that's been a, a perennial issue for, for decades. And they're, they're, I would put them on the loser side of the equation. I don't think the last few years and this year they haven't really had a, a good time. They've lost legal battle after legal battle. I think they've exhausted their arguments and they've all been shot down so thoroughly. They, they really are intellectually bankrupt, and I think it's really starting to show. They're starting to get really desperate in their, in their rhetoric. Mm. Is it the big stuff that really, that really gets you going, the anti-vaccination stuff, the Darwinian stuff? I mean, you also deal with uh, whatever, you know, Bigfoot sightings, uh, aliens in the window and things like that. Uh, are they both equally satisfying? Yeah, I mean, those are fun, too, but those are like mind candy. You know, those are the little snacks that we have in between the main course. Uh, things like you know UFOs, I mean, th that's old school. That's we've we've dealt with those issues decades ago, and they sort of wax and wane. They come and go. And UFOs really haven't been too much on the radar Th this past year. I think the ghost hunters 
had their heyday. They they um, ma- mainly because of reality TV. So mm-hmm. there was this perfect perfect marriage of ghost hunters and reality TV. You just get a, a bunch of uh, people, you know, a bunch of amateurs with cool looking instruments g- creeping around houses <laughs> late at night with you know, with the with the black lights on. Well, can you stomach somebody who gets excited about that kind of a thing? I mean, it's we don't you don't know. I don't know if ghosts exist, right? We would both agree that it probably hasn't been proven. Uh, well, there's so no. Way, if you take a, a scientific approach to it, you could say, "Well, there's no evidence. Show me credible evidence, and then well, I'll take it seriously." And, yeah. But until I don't see any credible credible evidence, if people want to make a faith based claim about ghosts, okay, that that's. Your prerogative, but I'm talking about science. Hmm. So, Steve, and to our listeners, I'll, I'll mention we're doing something a little different today since we're doing an extended interview here. Uh, Sandin's mic is open, and Sandin's joining me here in the studio. Hey. And uh, I know he had a couple of questions for you as well, so I'll toss it to him for a second. Hey, Steve, this is Sandin. How are you doing? Good, good. Um, yeah, I just actually, this is a little, sort of a personality question, but you, you, I can hear the joy in your voice when you talk about going after some of these, uh, some of these, you know, the anti vaccination crowd and, and the, um, anti-evolution crowd i wonder what it is that drives you i mean is do you really like sort of picking fights or uh you just gotten used to it i mean it must be kind of hard constantly kind of going on on the defense there yeah well we try not to stay all on defense i think carl sagan mapped out a good road for us in terms of going on offense in that we also want to promote good science and the awe and wonder of the scientific view of the universe. You know, it really is very liberating, a very beautiful view of reality. And so we want to be very, very positive as far as that's concerned too. But also we want to defend science and defend rationality against those people who will attack it for their own purposes. Sure, I find it a lot of fun. It's the, you know, partly just the intellectual exercise, dissecting the illogic of a bad argument for me is is extremely interesting. It's almost like dissecting a specimen. You know, you want to see what what went wrong. What what's what's the pathology in this person's thinking that's leading them to this abysmal conclusion. Of course, it's it's hard not to get frustrated too when you you're having to make the same arguments over and over again against the same logical fallacies. I'm also a teacher, so I'm used to repeating things over and over again. I have a high <laughs> tolerance for it, I guess. So if you uh, are sticking with this um, this idea of you know promoting good science as well as uh, debunking bad science, has there been uh, you know a story that just beautifully captured you know good science for you this year? One that was just you know well thought out, well uh, good conclusions, well researched, well, that... and swayed the public maybe. Yeah. killed some bad science. Well, uh, there was, uh, again, I'm not 100% sure if this was the beginning of this year or the end of last year, but there was the, uh, the, the Lenski experiments where he followed bacterial cultures for like 20 years and, and de- in a very elegant experiment showed how the bacteria, through random mutations, evolved the ability to, to eat citrate as a food as opposed to glucose. So there you have a 20-year experiment directly following the, the effects of mutation and selection showing how these bacteria gained a new ability. That was, you know, a real home run, I think, for the mechanism of evolution. So we're ending uh, the first year of the Obama administration, and certainly during the Bush administration, there were plenty of accusations to go around of manipulated science or uh, omitted science, whatever you want to say, coming out of the federal government. I'm wondering, now that we've got a new administration, do you see any dangers science-wise with uh, the Obama administration? Well, the, the big thing that we've been dealing with is the health care reform. Mm-hmm. Some uh, congressmen, specifically Tom Harkin, have slipped in some provisions to promote so-called alternative medicine. 
And we, so we feel this is, this is a direct assault on the scientific standard of care within medicine. In order to have efficient, cost-effective uh, medicine, we need to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And the only way to really know what works is to use the best science that we have available. And, you know, Obama is saying that he wants, you know, s science to be restored to its proper role in informing government and informing policy. Right. We agree with that, but here, here's a big test. You know, if these provisions that were snuck in there are allowed to pass, you're going to ha essentially have an erosion of science as a way of determining, well, what does work and what is what And is they're still in there, medicine. right, at the moment? They are still in there. They hmm. are still in there. The, the worst one was taken out. There was one provision that was in the House bill, and I think it also crept into the Senate bill, but it was removed from both of them, that would have a, forced the, the government essentially to pay for prayer mm -hmm. as health care. That, that was the most egregious uh, example. That was removed. But now there are ones that basically say that um, insurance companies cannot refuse to pay for quote-unquote alternative you know, practitioners or medicine you know, if it's something that's licensed by the state. In other words, they can't use science to determine what's, what's effective and what should be reimbursed. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I, again, these are all little ways of nibbling the science-based standard of care in medicine, which is ultimately going to be very costly and is going to be bad for people's health and, and bad for, you know, the, the health, the cost of health care. Mm. Now, how do we do that without forestalling the possibility that some of this stuff we might not understand yet might actually work? Well, th this is an old question. It's that we've, we have ways of dealing with the fact that we don't know everything in medicine, right? We always have to make health decisions in the absence of perfect information. The problem is, is when you abandoned any, abandon any standard and you're willing to use highly implausible treatments for which there's no evidence, or the evidence shows, in fact, that they don't work, but then you essentially make you know bogus arguments such as you know cherry picking the minority of evidence that may seem like there is a, a weak effect or saying well science can't really study this treatment so my my favorite example at the moment is always homeopathy mm -hmm. you know homeopathy a lot of people think it's just herbal remedies but it isn't it's a, it's actually a 200 year old system that's pre-scientific and and it involves diluting substances to the point where there's zero active ingredient left so it's literally placebos it's sugar pills with nothing in it and then they use really some magical arguments to say that there's some vibrations or some energy effect in the pill it really is completely unscientific and there, there's zero plus as close to zero plausibility as you can get in science right, right? there's always yeah, you always have to have that sliver of, you know, we don't know everything, but it's as close to zero as you can get. And it's been studied to death. If you look at all the clinical trials, homeopathic remedies don't work. They haven't, no one's been able to show a consistent effect from any homeopathic remedy. So if this were just another drug being promoted by a pharmaceutical company, it, it would have been discarded long ago. It has no place in a 21st century science-based healthcare system. Just to keep us in the, in the realm of uh, policy here for a bit, this has been a really good year for alternative fuels, or at least for discussions about alternative fuels, right? Uh, and some of that is very exciting. Some of it may have great basis in uh, you know, actual scientific potential. But I'm wondering how that, how that works for you when we're in this, suddenly we're talking about hydrogen you know, cars and you know, electric-powered everything. Does that create some challenges? Yeah. 
Yeah, so the, the whole energy question is, again, is, is one that skeptics have been taking on from multiple different angles. But again, just along with the scientific community, I mean, I find a lot of these questions very interesting. And again, it's one where the science really should be informing the policies and the politics. The, the, if we're going to find answers, we've got to get the science right. And the science is a little complicated. Like just asking or answering the question, if you make a, a gallon of biofuel, how much energy did it take to make that? And did, did it cost more energy to make than we will then get out of it? And there's actually a range of answers right. on those questions. Well, our sacred fuel here in the Midwest, uh, yeah. ethanol has been, been pretty thoroughly debunked over the past year, it seems like. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the answers hover around, well, it's just about neutral, which means it's a, it's a wash. It's a waste of time and mm -hmm. effort. If you, if you have to burn a, ga a gallon of gasoline to make an equivalent amount of biofuel in terms of energy, then you've gained nothing. You've just sort of wasted everyone's time. That actually gets to a point that I'd love to ask you about more because it seems like what you're saying is that so many of these technologies are, uh, you know, first you think they're good and then you look into it and you realize, okay, maybe we're not making a lot of fuel here or maybe it doesn't work like we thought. The science always has that little bit of, you know, extra research could yield a new result kind of thing to it. And yep. when you're talking to politicians, they need to know now and they need to make a firm decision because if they don't act soon on a lot of the stuff, you know, the bill disappears and no one ever wants to touch it again. You know, that's got to put science in a tough place when, you know, you're basically dealing with wanting to find a truth that takes a really long time to find. And, uh, you know, business leaders and politicians who, who need that stuff now or they're going to forget about it and never come back to it. Yeah, well, I understand the needs of politics, but uh, again, the, it, it depends on which you you give more weight i think if you if the proper relationship between science and politics should be that the science informs the politics and sometimes the politics just has to wait for the science if you rush it and say give me an answer now you 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 you're risking getting a bad answer and i think that that historically you know doesn't doesn't work out very well you end up betting on a lot of losing horses rather than just letting the science work itself out it's going to take time but let it work itself out. Now that the politics is just knowing when should we make decisions and when should we commit resources, even when the science isn't 100% in yet. Is it okay if it's 80%? Is that enough to start doing something? Or do we have to wait till it's 95%? That's a political decision. But mm -hmm. the scientists just need to give them the most accurate and unbiased information to the politicians. Well, I know we've got limited time here. We need to send you on your way. So we're going to kind of go speed round here for the remaining, uh, I don't know, five minutes or so of the interview. Are you up for that? Sure. Absolutely. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Uh, and uh, you can take a pass, I guess, if you, nothing comes immediately to mind. Well, w were you wrong at any point over the past year? Was I personally wrong about anything? No, I was I, not We're talking in your anything. professional skeptical capacity here, I guess, not just around the house. Yeah, I understand. I mean, no, there was, <laughs> I haven't committed myself to anything that was, was then shown to be, to be absolutely wrong in the last year that I could recall. Oh, nice work. Uh, was there anything that you really wanted to debunk over the past year, but you just couldn't quite muster the evidence yet? Um, there's a couple of topics that I've been holding off on because I haven't wrapped my mind around them yet. Uh, one is uh, organic farming. Uh, which I'm very dubious about, but uh, uh, something that's a little bit f outside of my comfort area. So I'm still working on that. If you one. think you brought on the hate with the anti-vaccine stuff, oh yeah, there's no question. <laughs> Just wait till you take on the anti-vaccination. Wait till you take on organic farming. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, organic farming. I think that it's an issue that other people have dealt with, and uh -huh. um, I'm looking to get it better informed from experts before I commit myself to anything specific. I think that there's a lot to be to be dealt with in there. There's a lot of dubious claims that are being made. Mm. 
but um, you know, I don't I don't like committing myself to things until I feel like I've gotten to a certain comfort level. Okay, that's a good example. Uh, another speed round question in thirty seconds or less. Why do you dislike Deepak Chopra so much? For a number of reasons. One is that he is using his status as a physician to promote his personal religion and his personal ideology. And I think that it's unethical and it's, it's a terrible idea to mix those two things, to try to put your professional and scientific authority behind what amounts to cultural, spiritual beliefs. And in order to advance his spiritual agenda, he absolutely abuses the science. Hmm. For example, you know, quantum mechanics is, is, I think, his favorite science to completely abuse. And he ends up confusing the public about interesting science in order to advance his ideological agenda. So that's, that, to me, really gets my goat. That's just terrible. 2009 was, uh, in a lot of ways, media-wise, the year of the Huffington Post. And I, mm-hmm. I just spotted in browsing through some of your uh, recent archives, you don't like the Huffington Post very much. What's wrong with it? Huffington Post has proven to be consistently anti-science. A few pro-science mm-hmm. articles have worked their way in there. And I know some people who are writing for the, for the, for the HuffPo, as we call it, who have managed mm-hmm. to get some good articles in there. But generally speaking, they have been a home for the anti-vaccination movement. They've been a home to anti-science-based medicine uh, proponents. They have given voice to a number of horrendous anti-scientists and pseudoscientists. You know, Dana Ullman promoting homeopathy, Mm -hmm. uh, David Kirby promoting the anti-vaccination movement, again, Deepak Chopra promoting his pseudoscientific spirituality. A lot of harm that was done. Very unbalanced as well. It's it's clearly an editorial policy of theirs. Uh, Santa's got one for you. Okay, quick one. Uh, I've noticed on your blog you drop uh, Star Trek references every once in a while, which is uh, uber cool of you. Very nerdy. Oh, yeah. Uh, Are there any new uh, sci-fi franchises you've caught on to lately that you think, uh, you know, kind of meet your high standard for both uh, fun and science-y awesomeness? I enjoyed the Battlestar Galactica series on the sci-fi channel right up until the very last episode, which was an abomination. (laughs) Uh, But the rest of the series was some of the best science fiction that's out there. I just saw... Avatar. Yeah. Which I, w- I won't give any spoilers. I loved it. I love the movie in terms of the special effects and the and the the world that Cameron created. The story was, you know, I think somebody said it was dances with Smurfs, which <laughs> that pretty much sums up the plot line. So not, nothing terribly new there. Characters could have used a little bit better development, but for eye candy and for imagining a new world, it was wonderful. Oprah's retiring. Does that make you happy? Well, I don't. I. I don't know that she's retiring so much as just shifting from her, her daytime television that, show. That's but the, true. I She'll think, still have plenty of outlets, I guess. Yeah, we'll Harpo Entertainment is, will live on. And she's, you know, just gave a contract to Jenny McCarthy, you know, to promote her anti-vaccinationist agenda. She still is, it's her mission in life to use her, her billions of dollars and her media empire to promote spirituality and anti-science. Uh, and again, she gives a voice to a lot of people who have a lot of dangerous, harmful things to say, and she does not hold herself accountable to that at all. Hmm. Uh, related to that, maybe uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz is going to get his own TV show, and he's a big Oprah guest uh, as, a, as yes. a physician, as a skeptic. Do you think that is a okay thing? Well, you know, Mehmet Oz is a strange creature. You know, he certainly is a, is a straight-up surgeon, you know, mainstream physician. And whenever he's asked about things within the realm of just regular science-based you know, mainstream medicine, he gives pretty evidence-based, reasonable answers. But then he mixes in a lot of philosophy-based nonsense. So I, I, don't, I don't understand this, this whole notion of, of, on the one hand, 
working within evidence-based medicine, but then whenever you want to, you'll just promote whatever nonsense is fashionable. What's a nonsense-y thing? Because I, you know, I read him mostly in Esquire, I guess, where it all seems pretty nuts and bolts, but uh, on Oprah, I guess he's a little more fluid. Yeah, I mean, he, he, again, he, he, do, he will sit side by side with, you know, those who are promoting nonsense and will accept it and, mm. and with, won't challenge the other guests. So he then lends his credibility of you know of a of a surgeon of a physician to whatever nonsense is being promoted alongside of him, and he's written articles and said things that promote some you know some spiritual nonsense in medicine that I felt w- you know really crossed the line for a physician. Where um, you know I, I, I wrote a blog article in fact for example uh, you know about a case that he relates where a, a patient refused to get a blood transfusion, and he he tells how they miraculously survived in the end and presented this as if this is somehow a representative case. Mm -hmm. I was like, wait a minute. In that situation, most people who refuse a transfusion are going to die. And to, to, to pretend otherwise really is very harmful and misleading. I mean, obviously, it was good that they survived, but it's, it's very dangerous to, to say that that's representative because it absolutely is not. So you follow science uh, really closely. You're constantly writing about it, talking about it, probably thinking about it all the time. I want to know, what do you do to get your mind off science? Do you have like hobbies like fantasy football or scrapbooking or, I don't know, like NASCAR or something? Scrapbooking. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, you know, I certainly, I, you know, engage in a lot of entertainment. Uh, I role play with my friends. I have a World of Warcraft group going right now. Um, spend time with my family doing stuff. So yeah, I, I do stuff to relax and, and get my mind off of, off of skepticism and science when necessary. So for our last question, I'm going to throw this to Mark, our listener in Paris, who actually suggested that we should talk with you in the first place. And uh, let's hear his question. Hi, it's Mark calling from Paris, it seems to me, my opinion, that part of the attraction of quack medicine and alternative medicine is the poor image of the medical establishment and the poor relationship between medical practitioners and their patients. What do you think physicians can do to enhance their own image and improve their ability to deal with quacks and alternative medicine? and generally uh, have better relationships with their patients where patients are more likely to to trust that they're acting in their best interest rather than working for big pharma. Well, I think that the premise that there's a problem between the relationship between physicians and patients is is a little bit oversold. If you you survey patients, even those who use quote-unquote alternative medicine, they, they don't say that they use it because they're unhappy with mainstream medicine or their physician. It's one of those things where everyone thinks their physician's great. It's the other people's physicians that are, that are bad. The, the problem is that with PR and a, a science-based profession like medicine is that you know, we, we have to be truthful. It's actually part of our ethical canon that we need to give informed consent to patients. We have to tell them the truth. You know, we can't spin the truth in order to, in, for PR purposes or marketing purposes. And sometimes that means, you know, you know, PR may suffer, but we just have to do the best we can in explaining why we're doing what we're doing to patients, why, you know, we, how we make our decisions. I do my own practice style is to spend time explaining to patients not just what I recommend, but why I recommend it and the thought process that we go through, you know, explaining to patients risk versus benefit and you know, why doing more tests may actually be to their disadvantage. And if you can get patients to understand the way you're thinking, they will buy into 
your recommendations more and they'll be much more satisfied. So I, I think that just educating individual patients and educating the public is the best that we can do, but we're constrained by the truth. Learning how to relate to them, how to say, look, suppose you're a level three warlock and <laughs> you've got a mace of power on one. Okay, anyway. Uh, well, Steve, thank you so much for making some time for us today. I know you've got a zillion things going on, but it's been fun to talk with you. My pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Anytime. It's Dr. Stephen Novella, neurologist at the Yale School of Medicine and uh, founder of the New England Skeptical Society. His podcast is Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Well, what'd you think, Shannon? That was a little, little rush near the end, but that was that was a cool way. To I do can't a show believe for he plays World of Warcraft. That means you know That's I could go on there and t- totally find you know this guy that I admire and uh, try to slay him. Maybe he's got some good. I bet he's probably got a good team. It'd be kind of hard. Yeah, you've been listening to him for a little while, and I'm not sure why I hadn't heard of him. But anyway, uh, thanks to Mark for introducing me to his his stuff. He's a prolific blogger i don't know how that's when does he play world of warcraft because he's writing on like three four different blogs doing this podcast every week and he's a neurologist at yale yeah he 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 must just not sleep he's using that deepak chopra trick to you know discover extra quantum hours in the week somehow anyway uh in the loop is produced by this guy sand and totten and by me yeah i think we may have a week off here we'll see what happens because again between new year's and all that it all gets a little bit odd but uh We'll be back in January. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.